Would you pray with me? God, we worship you. We praise you this morning, and we acknowledge that you are, in fact, our everything. That it is you who gives us life. It is you who gives us every single breath that we take. It is you who sustains us. It is you who strengthens us. It is you who saves us. And we are so grateful for your love for us this morning. God, we just worship you now, and we pray that every day you would help us to worship and praise you and live in acknowledgement of what we have just sung to you. In Christ's name, amen. And you can have a seat. Genesis chapter 4 tells us about the first two brothers in history. They were the first two children of Adam and Eve, Cain and his brother Abel. And it also tells us that from the beginning, life seems to work in a way for Abel that it just doesn't for Cain. Abel's the golden boy. Abel is the favorite. And whatever he touches just seems to flourish. Not so much for Cain. It feels like whatever Cain touches withers. And so Cain begins to despise Abel and the tension grows between them as siblings, and it actually comes to a head in, of all places, in church, where in one moment, Abel's worship is accepted by God and Cain's is not. And Cain's anger soon turns to revenge, and revenge gives birth to a plan. No doubt, Abel could sense Cain's growing contempt for him. He could hear it in the tone of his voice. He could feel it in the stiffness of his posture when he was around. And so any sign of softening, any sense that they might return to the previous loving relationship absolutely thrilled Abel. And then there was that one horrible day when cloaking his dark intent behind a masquerade of brotherly kindness Cain asks Abel to go for a walk in the fields that he tended. Joyfully, he accepted and spent time with his brother. And there in those fields, Cain brutally attacks and viciously murders his only brother. Sometime later, God shows up and just asks a really simple but important question. Of Cain. He says, Where's your brother? Aloof, defiant, Cain responds, I don't know. Am I my brother's guardian? Hmm. That kind of tension, that kind of aggression, that kind of denial isn't limited to brothers. Not in the Bible, not in the world we live in. You don't have to go far to find pain, to find places where tempers flare and people divide over the slimmest of reasons. And it seems that those questions asked so long ago are more poignant today than ever before. If we want to live a godly life, if we want to be like Jesus more and more in our character, 
How do we answer those questions for ourselves? What do we do when social media, or even like for me this week, my Starbucks app popped up the opportunity to donate and to help with the devastation that's happening with the flooding in Louisiana? What do we do when just one border, just a few miles away in Milwaukee, violence breaks out? Do we feel the pain or do we rush to judge with all the losses that were taking place? Do our hearts open wide or do they close when it comes to helping the poor and the needy? in Nicaragua, in Elgin, or maybe in the house right next door to where you live. Where is my brother? Who is my brother, really? I mean, am I my brother's guardian? Peter stops us cold with his challenge. He causes us to recalibrate when he says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith brotherly kindness. Well, good morning, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this beautiful October morning. If you like that, that great snap in the air this morning. Some of you have already been complaining about it, and I love it. I'm just hoping it stays like this all the way through February. Um, Hey, we're going to talk about brotherly kindness this morning, and it is the next to the last virtue in this list in 2 Peter 1 that we've been looking at. And uh, We've been doing this for several weeks now. There are a lot of Greek words that Peter could have used uh, when he chose a word here for brotherly kindness. And some would have actually been a more natural choice in this passage. If for no other reason than for the people of that day, they were more commonly understood and more commonly used. For example, Peter could have used the Greek word philanthropia. You may recognize it. It's the word that we would get our word philanthropy from. And philanthropy is a love that is expressed in selfless generosity. It is incredibly kind. Philanthropy is usually anonymous. We can write a check. We can give food. We can give clothing all from a distance and most often with a certain detachment to the gift that we're giving. We can do really good work in philanthropy, but it doesn't necessarily have to be personal. Not so with Philadelphia. That's why Peter chooses that particular word in this passage. It's translated here most often as brotherly affection or brotherly kindness. And it can cover a range of emotion and relationship. Everything from just cutting some slack to somebody that you know, to a deep personal relationship and friendship, a bond of love. The key difference between the two words and why Peter chooses Philadelphia is that it requires me to love someone up close, to be face-to-face and practical with the love. Here's one of the odd things when we get down to talking about translating words in the Bible, is this word Philadelphia, everywhere else that it's used in the New Testament with every other writer, 
it's translated directly as brotherly love. But not so here. Not in 2 Peter 1. And I think I understand why. Because when you go through the, vir- the, the virtues that are listed there, the very next virtue after this one is love. It's another word used for love. And so if it, this one were translated brotherly love, the passage might be confusing to read. It would be, so make every effort to add to godliness brotherly love and to brotherly love, love. We'd kind of go, huh? Because to us, it's the same word. But for that last virtue, Peter uses a very familiar word to us. It's a famous word for love, agape. But it's got a different meaning than Philadelphia. It's got a different application. And Peter doesn't get really concerned about semantics. He doesn't get really concerned about splitting the definitions out. He's not ranking one word above the other. As I've heard a lot of teachers or writers talk about when they talk about both words. Peter's just very simply, very plainly in this passage saying, we need both loves. We don't prefer one or the other. We pursue both. We acquire both. We grow in both in our relationship with Christ because without both, the Christian life is incomplete. And here's why. Philadelphia is to love who God loves. Agape is to love how God loves. And we'll talk about agape in two weeks when we look at that last virtue. So who does God love? If we find that out, then we find out who's our brother. Who does God love? Find that out, and we'll know we are that person's guardian. In Peter's day, without exception, Philadelphia described this special bond that existed between literally blood brothers, and specifically brothers who were born of the same father. It was their way of saying blood is thicker than water. Family sticks together, always, always sticks together. And you didn't owe Philadelphia to anybody else in this world. You didn't owe it to strangers. You didn't owe it to neighbors. You didn't owe it to friends. You didn't even owe it to someone who was in need that you encountered. Philadelphia was only owed to a sibling that you had blood relation with. But the Bible takes that word Philadelphia and in every single instance flips it inside out. The New Testament hijacks that word for love that was very exclusive in the culture and makes it inclusive in the church. It expands our circle of affection and obligation because now our bloodline runs through Jesus. You, every one of you is now my brother, my sister, And we are bound to each other as if we had the same Father because we do through Christ. That was an extreme radical shift for every culture that encountered the gospel. This new Philadelphia erases every economic barrier. It erases every social barrier. It erases every racial barrier in every culture. Because of grace, I am compelled to love you. Not from a distance, but up close and practically. I am your guardian. 
If God is my father, if God is your father, then we are all his children and we are family. And if I love the father, then I'm going to love whatever he loves. And he loves his children most of all. (laughs) But let's be honest. Not all of his kids are easy to love, right? Some of God's kids are tough to love. My uh, favorite person in describing this is Thomas Merton, who was a Trappist monk who lived in, of all places, Kentucky. When I think of monks living in a monastery, I don't think of Kentucky. I'll just be honest. Here's how he described what it's like to try to love each other in God's family. He said, we don't readily fit together in God's family. We're like a bunch of porcupines trying to huddle together for warmth. Just stop and think about that for a minute. Isn't that a nice comical image? We're like a bunch of porcupines trying to huddle together for warmth who are always driven apart out of fear of the wound we can inflict upon each other with our quills. I love that picture of the church. It's one of my favorite images of God's family. Because see, there are some amazing, beautiful people in God's family. People who are just incredible. They give and they love and they serve. And they're easy to love. But there are some of God's kids who are crabby. There are some who are just cantankerous. There are some who are boring. Stop looking at your friends. There are some who are obnoxious. There are some who have annoying habits. There are some that are just hard to get along with. If you hang around God's family long enough, you're going to find them. Got anybody you feel that way about? Here's the tough truth. If you've got somebody you feel that way about, odds are there are at least a couple of people who feel that way about you. I know there are at least a couple of people that feel that way about me. And that is not something I need you to write on your comment card this morning. That is not affirmation, okay, that I was right. And as prickly as we are, we are still brothers and sisters, children of the same father. And John writes this. John annoyingly writes this. If I'm honest, he says, Whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. We have this new law. Brotherly love. And if we love God first and foremost in our lives, then he will help us over time as we love what he loves and love who he loves to learn how to love his kids. And I think that brotherly love comes out in four expressions. It works its way out in our lives in four ways. First, we begin to learn that we just don't play favorites in God's family. Nobody gets status, nobody gets privilege, nobody gets position. We're all in this together. James, in his writing 
just makes it really clear to us as believers. He says, we must not show favoritism. Now, when you think about that for a minute, that gets really hard to live out. Because we all have favorite people in our lives, don't we? I mean, it's just the truth. We love working with some people more. We love hanging out with some people more. We have favorite people in our lives. And to deny any favoritism is simply denying our humanity. So when we read on in what James says, it's not that he's saying there will be no favoritism in our relationships and our, and our preferences. As much as he's saying that we have these tendencies in our lives to naturally cut people out for other reasons. And the example he gives is that churches and groups of people tend to flatter the rich and mistreat the poor. And it's just an example. And James says that type of favoritism and others like it are just evil. They have no place in God's family. We have to work to erase those kinds of lines that can creep into our relationships and into our family. Lines that would carve anybody out, make them feel unwanted, unneeded, unwelcome. Brotherly love also works its way out in our lives in unity. One of the most beautiful prayers recorded in Scripture is when Jesus was praying in John 17 on the night before his death. And if you read that prayer, the common thread that runs all the way through it is Jesus praying that those who follow him would be one. That they would experience unity. He prays, my prayer is that all of them would be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Because of grace, we have been forgiven so much in our lives. And Jesus simply prays that we would extend that grace to each other in our relationships. To remember that whatever makes us different could not possibly be greater than what makes us the same. To remember that whatever divides us can't possibly be stronger than what brings us together. That whatever we have in common is greater and exceeds everything that we don't. In brotherly love, we also find this closeness that goes beyond friendship. Greater than just casual acquaintances. When you study the life of Paul from the book of Acts through all of his writings, what you find is not some distant, aloof pastor who just went about planting churches and did this as a job. Paul poured his life into his work and into the people he did it with. And he developed these rich friendships. And so consequently, when you read the letters that he wrote to the churches, which is a bulk of the New Testament, you read those letters he wrote to the churches, you find near the end of nearly every one of them this list of people that he just poured his heart out to. We tend to skim over that sometimes. Read it carefully and you'll find loving words, heartfelt words to those people, words of encouragement, words of gratitude. Near the end of uh, Philippians, Paul writes and says, My brothers and sisters, you you whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, 
And then he goes on to list specific individuals. As far as we know, Paul really didn't have any family that shared his faith. Nobody to share his spiritual journey with. Nobody to share this work with. And I think that made his relationships in the church that much more special to him. You see it in his writing. You hear it in the tone. Because they faced everything together. They faced challenges. They faced opportunities. They faced sometimes life and death together. Brotherly love calls us to take those kinds of risks. To just simply open up and be honest about life. What's going on? What we're dealing with. To be honest about the journey we're on with God and where those rough edges are in our lives and where God's challenging us to grow. And I don't know if you have those relationships in your life right now, but for me over the last 30 years, I have found those consistently in a community group. Whether it's a group of guys that I meet with for breakfast or it's a couples group like I'm in right now. Finding those relationships helps me be able to open up and share honestly about life and have those relationships that are deeper than just a casual friendship or a Sunday morning conversation. If you don't have that, I encourage you to find it. Middle of September, we're going to be kicking off community groups for the fall here at the church. Talk to Wally Marshall, our Connections Pastor. Talk to me after the service. We'd love to help you find a group and begin to build those relationships here. Lastly, when we really love each other, I think we can't help but serve each other. Romans 12 is a chapter that's all about serving each other. And in the middle of that, Paul just says, look, you need to just be good friends who love each other deeply. It's that Philadelphia word. Good friends who love each other deeply. Practice playing second fiddle. Good friends love each other, serve each other. Love honors. Love is practical devotion. Doesn't mind playing second fiddle for the third or fourth time. We just love our brothers and sisters more than we love ourselves. Think like every one of these virtues that we've talked about in this series. Brotherly love, Philadelphia, is going to take time for us to develop. There's more to it than what first meets the eye. But if we want to have more of God in our lives, we can't just settle for making friends, hanging out with the people that we're naturally drawn to, the people that are naturally beauty, beautiful, naturally attractive, naturally winsome. Because the church, like the world, is full of porcupines. It just is. And in case you haven't figured out, those porcupines that you wrestle with and get stuck by, ones you wish would just change, they're heading to heaven too. Just like you and me. And the funny thing is that as we learn to love those people with a brotherly love, as we begin to spend some time with those people, 
we might even begin to learn to like them. We see past those quills. We begin to see how God is reshaping their heart, changing them, molding them. And that's really good news because we start to discover they're not as prickly as we thought they once were. And it gives us hope because the odds are really good. In fact, I'm pretty sure they're right at 100% that every one of us in this room is a porcupine too for somebody. So that same grace that's saving and reshaping the person who's a porcupine in your life is doing the same for you and for me. And that's great news. Brotherly love calls us to extend grace to and love each other. Because we're a family. Because it's just simply better to do this life together. And we don't do that. We don't extend grace. We don't do life together because it's an obligation, because it's a drudgery, because it's a duty. We do it in celebration. We do it in celebration that God's taken this ragtag group of people and pulled us together in this place. And he's doing some amazing things in us and through us. And he's creating a family. We do it in celebration of the fact that God has loved every single one of us in ways that none of us are worthy of. We do it in celebration that as we love him, he's teaching us how to love each other. We do it in celebration that whatever closeness we're beginning to develop here is just a shadow of the closeness we'll have one day. And it's continued from this day onward in heaven where we'll spend eternity with him. And we will experience what the Bible calls one massive family reunion in the presence of Jesus.